Welcome to the No One Is Competent Podcast, the premier show about the failures of military, politics, life, death, hell. We'll probably get to sex at some point. I'm so glad you joined us for our episode of the War of the Third Coalition, the approximately 247th entry in our French Revolution slash after French Revolution, no one can fucking make up their mind series. <laughs> I am Azalea, one of your hosts, joined by my illustrious co-host, Jay. You can find me on Twitter at Azalea Wyatt, and you can find Jay on Twitter at Jaharis48. If you wish to email the show proper, that is no one is competent at gmail.com. And before we move on, I want to get on my knees and tell you that this show has no sponsors, no advertisements. And it's good to you. Please, please, please promote the show in any way you can. Whatever you're listening to us on Spotify, YouTube, leave a comment, give us a like. If you're on Apple, please leave a a review, maybe a little bit of that five-star action, I would appreciate it. Anyway, you can offer up a sacrifice, and offering to the algorithms on our behalf. I would appreciate it because I am a narcissist, and I really like it when people think I'm cool. Jay, scale one to ten, how narcissistic do you think you are? Um, That's a good question. Maybe a five. It, it is funny, though, because, like, if, if you max out narcissism, you are actually incapable of... Yeah. Objectively admitting your narcissism. <laughs> True. So the scale, like, kind of really goes to 13. Falling or falls off, yeah. And finally, before we get down to banter, that beautiful music you're hearing, that's from the legendary Sam Bryce. Jay, I just got off work. How are you doing? Doing well enough. Doing all right. Uh, just looking forward to talking more about uh, Austrians losing battles <laughs> for the uh, third coalition war in a row. I assume it's uh, heavily preferable to when Austrians win battles. Yeah, I. there's a joke that the the Austrian army existed just to give Napoleon victories. And this is the war that I think really kind of makes that joke a thing. Yeah, this is like, my understanding is like one of the the cleanest executions of a beatdown. Like this is the military equivalent of a combo video we got coming up. Yes. This is what like every general in the Union and Confederacy in the Civil War is trying to recreate this campaign, mm. basically. Oh, yeah, so the War of the Third Coalition. There's a... Uh, how how many of these we still got to go? Uh, well, they go all the way to uh, six, so... I guess there is technically seven, but that's the, the 100 Days campaign, if you want to consider it. Otherwise, it's six. And audience, if you think that doing the next four coalitions is j only going to take us four episodes, oh, no. <laughs> you are probably wrong. Yeah, very much so. This, you know, from we've seen France be this 
quivering and quaking monstrosity of backwards debt-ridden decadence turn into a frenzy of violence and new ideas somehow surging forth to defeat much of the rest of Europe and uh, eventually become centered around this rising star of Napoleon. And, you know, here we're going to have, like, would you, would you say this is the apex of his strength? I would say that, yes, at the, really either you say at the, either at the end of this war or the next one is the apex of his strength. And a lot of military historians will say that this is Napoleon's army as it, at its best. You know, this is the Grand Armée at its peak. Hmm. For reasons we'll get to in a, a little bit later. All right, who are our sources? All right, so our sources are The Napoleonic Wars, 1805 to 1807 by Todd Fisher. Austerwitz, 1805, The Fate of Empires by Ian Castle. Austerwitz, 1805, The Battle of the Three Emperors by David Chandor as well as on my two YouTube videos, the first one being From Company to Core, Napoleonic Units Explained by Napoleonic Wargaming, and the second being Napoleon's Masterpiece, Austerwitz 1805 by Epic History TV. Now, to recap our previous episodes, and we'll remind you that pretty much all of the background of these events has been covered extensively by this podcast before, The 10 years between 1792 and 1802 had seen France triumph over the combined forces of Europe's great powers in the First and Second Wars of the Coalition. These wars had seen France not only defend her borders, but expand her sphere of influence into the Low Countries, Italy, and across the Rhine. And for those of you who appropriately don't care about Europe, that means like, you know, Belgium and the Netherlands and... and, uh, Wherever the Denmark, Denmark. Yeah, I refuse to. By the way, I'm just gonna say this: anyone who tells you that th- those three countries are three separate countries that exist, no, there's no way that the Netherlands and Denmark are both a thing. Like I, I refuse. I, I, they, there's no difference between the two. There's no distinguishing I mean, factors. Denmark is in in all Scandinavian. The the other two in all practical matters they're exactly the fucking same i i i will never i could drink from the fountain of knowledge and i i could have my kundalini's primed i could have the eighth gate open i could achieve enlightenment and and max out at 70 77 iq and I would still not be able to tell you on a map which one was denmark and which one was the netherlands i mean Denmark's a peninsula. I don't think it's that difficult. <laughs> it's a little bit jutting. Yeah, but up then into where the, is the Netherlands? The Netherlands is not a peninsula. The Netherlands is right, you know, probably Germany and between you know, Yeah, but Holland which the one's coast. the peninsula again? See, I can't even remember. It because it, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that they're different places. I mean I think most people don't know much or care much about the geography of other continents, like I'm sure for a Dane, like Georgia and, I don't know, Oregon are basically the same place. Then 
you know, the same thing in reverse. Yeah, but who cares about what they think? <laughs> anyway, so France, they're getting all up in Italy. They're getting all up in the in the, the northeast of Europe, in the low country. Um, and they're expanding their uh, influence across the Rhine River into what is now West Germany. Because remember, Germany's not a thing. Arguably not a thing now, but, you know. <laughs> one can only hope. Yeah. <laughs> so, the war of the Second Coalition coincided with Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power to become the most powerful man in France. In 1799, Napoleon overthrew the French Directory and established a new, more authoritarian government known as the French Consulate, with himself naturally at its head. In 1802, France signed the Treaty of Ami... Oh, oh, wait, this is named for the, the way the British say French words. Amiens, with Great Britain, formally bringing an end to a decade of war in Europe. Both Napoleon and British Prime Minister William Pitt viewed this as a temporary peace at best, but... A brief respite would allow them to build up their forces on both sides. Napoleon, in particular, would use the peace to embark on a series of politics designed to strengthen both France and his own personal rule. Both the military and civil bureaucracy were restructured, and a new legal code based on ancient Roman legal system was refined and promulgated. This period of stability brought about a new sense of optimism amongst the people of France, tired as they were by years of tumult. Napoleon's personal popularity skyrocketed. In 1802, a referendum giving him the title of First Consul for Life passed with 99.76% of the vote, which is easy to achieve when there's no secret ballot. But still, while the people of France were optimistic that the wars were now behind them, in time, the Peace of Amiens would prove to be nothing more than a brief respite. Pretty much after the Treaty of Amiens was signed, both sides started taking actions that the other is accused of violating it. You know, France annexes Switzerland, and they send over that mission to try to reconquer Haiti, which we talked about a few episodes ago. And these are both seen as queer acts of aggression by the British, but they technically didn't violate the treaty. Britain, on the other hand, refused to remove troops from Malta and Egypt, which was a very clear violation of the treaty. Now, both sides were preparing for the renewal of hostilities, and this would come in May 1803 in the form of a formal declaration of war on France by Britain. So, like, a year later. Yeah, it lasts a year. <laughs> all right, hey, let's not let's not let's not be be, be unfair. Fourteen months, <laughs> the eternal peace of, of Amiens, I think, is what they call it, or something like that. Lasts uh, lasts less than two years. Now, for the bulk of eighteen o three and early eighteen o four, the war between Britain and France consisted pretty much just of naval actions. The British seized French ships and implemented a loose blockade of France in both the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. Now, Napoleon, meanwhile, was beginning to amass forces in the north of France in preparation for an invasion of the British Isles. 
Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, army encampments near Boulogne turned into temporary villages as Napoleon began to assemble and drill an army for the invasion. This is also when the Louisiana Territory gets sold to the United States, both in order to raise funds for this military and because Napoleon knows, you know, the British are going to conquer it pretty much instantly if, if it remains French. Napoleon doing... Like, being one of the main reasons that the United States continues to be a country yeah. by distracting Britain for 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> now, France's chief weakness was, of course, its navy. The French navy had lagged behind its British counterpart prior to the Revolutionary Wars and arguably for kind of ever... Uh, unlike the army, it had seen little growth during the duration of those revolutionary wars. France had fewer ships than Britain and fewer trained and experienced crews to sail them. Even worse, the British declaration of war had seemingly caught the French Navy off guard, meaning its forces were now divided amongst harbors in the Atlantic and Mediterranean. While weakened, the French Navy was still a significant threat. If the Mediterranean fleet could break the blockade, it could, in theory, relieve the French Atlantic fleet and contest the British for control of the Channel. The French would then only have to challenge the British for long enough for their army to be ferried across the Channel unmolested. To quote Napoleon, Let us be the masters of the Channel for six hours, and we are masters of the world. Jay, what's your over-under on the correctness of that statement? I think it's pretty optimistic. Um, I mean, I think if Napoleon mm. could land his army in Britain, he would take it. Because the British army was a joke compared to, to Napoleon's. But I think the chance of the French being able to control the channel for long enough to get their army across is, is very optimistic. French prospects were raised further in October 1804, when the Spanish entered the war on France's side following a British sneak attack on Spanish vessels. Britain had acted preemptively due to having knowledge of a secret treaty between Spain and France, so there, that makes sense. Now, if Spain and France could combine their fleets, they would be able to reverse the numerical superiority of the Royal Navy, though... Especially in this period, what with, you know, winds controlling ships and the range of various cannonry being different. Uh, j just how many vessels, the, the tonnage of vessels you have is is not necessarily the number one um, factor in who wins a naval conflict. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> as we will see later. Um, that is very much the case. Now, the war that broken out in 1803 was not yet the War of the Third Coalition, due to the simple fact that a coalition had yet to be formed between France's enemies. Checkmate, liberals! <laughs> the British would soon seek to change that with their continental diplomacy and probably a lot of bribery. Now, Britain's main prospect for an ally against France was Russia. The previous Russian emperor, Paul I, had looked likely to ally with France by the end of the War of the Second Coalition, but his assassination brought about a new, more pro-British regime to power, centered around the young Emperor Alexander I. For more information on that, go listen to what we put out <laughs> literally two weeks ago! 
But that being said, Alexander was not yet ready to go to war with France without a cause, you know, beyond just aiding the British. As it turns out, the cause to bring Russia into the war would be provided not by Britain, but by Napoleon himself. You see, while Napoleon was widely popular in France, that didn't mean that he was universally loved. In particular, there was still a large amount of Bourbon loyalists remaining in France and, you know, living elsewhere in Europe. During the Directory, these loyalists had hoped to seize power through other means, including elections. But with Napoleon looking firmly entrenched in his dictatorship, they instead settled on what they perceived as their only remaining option, assassination. I mean, dude, this, this guy's gonna call himself consul for life, you know, might as well uh, explain what happened to the last guy who tried that, you know? Yeah. The, uh, the, the first and most spectacular attempt on his life, uh, this would be the Infernal Machine plot, would take place Yo, on December... That's a title! <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good name. This would uh, take place in December 1800, when a group of conspirators detonated a cart laden with gunpowder near Napoleon's carriage as he was being taken to the opera. So it's basically the 1800 version of a car bomb. Hmm. Now, Napoleon survived unharmed. They had messed up the timing of the fuse and everything. But several bystanders were killed. Yeah, and that is the 18th century equivalent of a car bomb. <laughs> yeah. Now, this act initially gets blamed on the Jacobins, uh, pro probably because there was an unrelated plot by Jacobin extremists to stab Napoleon to death in the theater that had been uncovered shortly beforehand, but eventually it became clear that the royalists were to blame. But this didn't stop Napoleon from torturing a bunch of Jacobins. But, so, like, politically, did Napoleon associate much with, like, the old uh because you know think about french politics like we went very hard to the left and then we very much had a, a rightward reaction and then we had a sort of center rightish government kind of whacking down anything that stuck up in an attempt to st stay in power which in napoleon his fat and his um co-conspirator shall we say overthrew so does napoleon like more associate with uh the old right and monarchists or more new politicians or he's trying to associate with everyone yeah um he i mean he was a jacobin to see himself he's bigger than well i mean you had to yeah be a jacobin. He... <laughs> yeah but he was I mean, he was pretty dedicated at, at, you know early on in his career and by the time he's first consul, he's appealing to the Jacobins. He's appealing to, like, what's left of, like, the Girondins, the more moderate Republicans. He wets a lot of the emigres back into France. He pardons a bunch of them. Um, I didn't talk about it, but he, you know, he makes the agreement with the church, the Concordat of 1801. He's trying to get everybody back on board and on his side. And this includes a lot of the royalists. His position is essentially that the purpose of the revolution was to create him. Yeah. Yeah, he is the revolution. <laughs> Napoleon responded to these attempts by cracking down hard on anyone suspected of being involved with them and by giving free reign to his police to root out conspiracies. In 1804, Napoleon's police chief, Joseph Fouche, uncovered a plot to foment a royalist uprising against Napoleon led by Louis-Antoine de Bourbon, the Duke of... I don't even fucking care how that's pronounced. He's a duke. Uh, 
And this guy is a member of the cadet branch of the House of Bourbon that resided in Baden, which is a minor state of the Holy Roman Empire. So this dude is a German who is related to old King Louis. Well, he's, I think he's French by birth, but he's living in Baden because of the whole, like, revolution thing. Yeah. Ah, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So, on March 10th, 1804, a group of French cavalry crossed the Rhine in secret, abducted the Duke, brought him back to France for trial. Hell yeah, extradition be damned. Now, the Duke was given a quick show trial and was executed on the 21st by firing squad. And while the Duke was probably guilty of conspiracy against Napoleon, the sudden execution of a member of the House of Bourbon ignited memories of the earlier days of the revolution across Europe. The incident was made more personal for Emperor Alexander as his wife, Louise of Baden, was the granddaughter of the Margrave of Baden. Mm, good title. The leader of that, that state that just had its sovereignty brushed aside by Napoleon's dragoons. I I love just how fucking incestuous yeah. uh, Europe is at this time. Just like everybody uh, knowing everyone, fucking everyone. For Napoleon, the repeated attempts by his enemies to assassinate him or overthrow his government had a different effect. Fearing that his legacy would be undone if he were to die young, Napoleon decided that the best way to stomp out this threat once and for all would be to not only establish himself as the ruler for life, but his family as the new ruling dynasty of France. In May 1804, a bill was passed in the Senate declaring Napoleon as Emperor of the French, and in November, this was passed in a referendum with overwhelming support, 99.93%. Napoleon's coronation would occur on December 2nd with an elaborately crafted ceremony held at the Cathedral of Notre Dame and attended by Pope Pius VII. Now, a little bit on just the title and ceremony because I find this stuff interesting. You'll know I'll say Emperor of the French as opposed to Emperor of France. A lot of the people would just say Emperor of France, but the former is more correct. And the reason why Napoleon goes with Emperor of the French is because it signifies that he's representative of the French people. He's not a king who owns a country as its own property, as being like the king of France. Rather, he's somebody who draws his authority from the people. It's not entirely a new idea. There was the title King of the Germans, which the Holy Roman Emperor has claimed as well. But um, it's a bit of a distinction. That he takes the title Emperor is also a distinction. He's not calling himself a king, because he's not trying to be, you know, the House of Bourbon 2.0. He's using the term emperor. And while today a lot of people just see emperor as like, you know, more powerful version of king, at the time, really the only people using the title of emperor in Europe were people who, whose countries had a direct claim back to the legacy of the Roman Empire. This would be the Holy Roman Empire and the Russians who claimed through the Byzantines to be, you know, the third Rome. So by calling himself emperor, he's also showing his imperial ambitions in a way that other European monarchs mostly weren't doing. You know, the kings of Britain were not emperors. The same with Spain and, you know, the Netherlands and so on. And the whole ceremony in general is really interesting because he's 
purposely taking symbolism from all over, you know, history. There's a lot of like Roman style stuff in there. He harkens back to like the Merovingians and Charlemagne, as well as taking some from, you know, the kingdom of France and kind of just melding all this imagery together into his new imperial, um, you know, regalia. So like super fast, the people who helped Napoleon come to power, why were they unable to stop? him from just taking the whole pie like he, he was supposed to be the puppet wasn't he yeah most of them kind of got sidelined they didn't have any support with the military and napoleon kind of gives um them just like like he'll give like the other consulates like kind of like do nothing jobs or um i guess that's a little bit unfair one of them is pretty important in, in drafting the napoleonic code if i'm remembering correctly is that say as yes yeah i think that might have been so like he'll give these people dork. Um, you know, jobs to do. But I think they they had realized that they had been pretty thoroughly outmaneuvered and Napoleon has all the support with the army, which is really what matters. And he now, really how how involved is, uh, who's that, that guy that uh, Mike Duncan's always got a hard on? Talleyrand. What's, what's Talleyrand doing right now? Is he, is it, are him and Napoleon tight? Uh, yeah, so Talleyrand actually... He, depending on who you believe, might have been the guy who he was definitely involved in suggesting that they go abduct the uh, the uh, Duke from Baden, <laughs> and he might have advocated for that guy's execution, depending on whether on, on who you believe. So yes, Talleyrand is politically involved at the moment. He's not the Minister of Foreign Affairs yet. He has um. I can't remember what his title is specifically at this point in time, but but he is involved in government. Could you just briefly explain who he is and what a little bit of what he'll do to people who don't know who I'm talking about real quick? Yeah, so Talleyrand is famous as being Napoleon's chief diplomat, essentially. He was involved in negotiating the treaty with Austria at the end of the War of the Second Coalition, as well as the Treaty of Amiens, which we mentioned earlier. He'll be involved with all sorts of dealings throughout Napoleon's career, um, you know, patching up relations with Russia when that briefly happens. And his legacy will go on, you know, even after Napoleon. He'll be a major figure in the Congress of Vienna in, you know, defining the way European politics would work for the next 50 odd years or so. If there's any politician that deserves to be in fate, it's Talleyrand. Yeah. <laughs> it's him or Metternich, maybe. Metternich's just such a boring stooge. <laughs> At least Talleyrand was involved in a few things that were fun. Yeah, fair. So Alexander had already been considering joining Britain in its war with France, and these actions would be the tipping point. For the monarchies of Europe, Napoleon was increasingly seen as a rapacious usurper bent on dominating the continent. I mean, he's literally replacing monarchs with this sort of king-from-the-people-ass shit. Yeah. So this is a direct assault, like insult and assault on their way of life. Yeah. Remember, folks, the upper class always have uh, solidarity with each other. Yeah. <laughs> This means that in April 1805, Russia joins Britain in its war. Now, Russia and Britain still wanted more allies. They quickly won over Sweden and Naples, but their main objective was Austria. 
Austria's defeat in the wars against revolutionary France had been total. Whereas both Russia and Britain had managed to save some face, Austria had been humiliated on the battlefield and forced to sign a treaty ceding their territories on the left bank of the Rhine and in Italy to the French. The later allowed Napoleon to claim the title of King of Italy, one previously held by the Habsburgs. I do, I do also like that, you know. He, he really doesn't want to be King of France, but he's fine being King of Italy. <laughs> That's okay. I don't have a joke to insert. In Vienna, the lull between 1801 and 1804 led to the rise of two groups at court, a peace faction and a war faction. The peace faction coalesced around Archduke Charles, the younger brother of Emperor Francis II. Charles was one of the few Austrian generals to come out of the preceding wars with his reputation largely intact, having won several victories over French armies, and was now in charge of reforming and modernizing the Austrian military. Uh, listeners who remember our previous episodes remember that Charles played the game very well, but that didn't stop Napoleon and other people from, on France's side from playing it better, but in, by no means embarrassed himself. Yeah. Charles was well aware, because he's the guy doing the modernization, that it would be years before Austria would be ready for a new war, and as such, advocated for his brother to remain on good terms with France, and even recognized Napoleon's title of emperor. The war faction, on the other hand, was led by the foreign minister, and a series of lesser courtiers. To challenge Charles' military authority, they decided to promote General Karl Mach von Lieber... I should be able to do this one. They decided to promote General Karl Mack von Liebrich as an alternative commander. Unlike Charles, General Mack... <laughs> yeah. Say we're really going to have a fucking General Mack? Yes, we are. I'm just going to imagine the dude from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia <laughs> this entire time. I hope you know that. Okay. Probably would have done a better job. Yeah. Uh, Probably. <laughs> hey, hey, no spoilers. Azalea, this show is no one is competent. The title is a spoiler. If something's on this, you know, we've already spoiled it. <laughs> also, it's been over 200 years. All right. So unlike Charles, General Mack had a far more optimistic view of the Austrian military despite the fact that his record during the Revolutionary War consisted primarily of getting captured by the French in Italy. He promised the Emperor that he could quickly organize for war with France and claimed that Charles was intentionally wasting time. The war faction also played on the Emperor's suspicions by hinting that Charles had ambitions to seize the throne for himself. In the end, Emperor Francis II was won over by Mack's promises and the war faction's arguments. In early 1805, Charles was sidelined and Mack placed in charge of the upcoming war effort. In August, Austria formally joined the Third Coalition, setting the stage for a massive war in Europe. Yeah, so like, this this is going to be a big one. Like, this is going to be everything that we kind of been promised so far. I mean, Russia's not it. Yeah. Russia's not in yet, but like this time, Russia might actually fully commit. We got Austria. 
We got the fucking Swedes coming in, Britain ruling the seeds. Seeds, like, just everybody team up and hit them. How hard could it be? Yeah. You got, you got half of of the kingdom of Naples because the other half is being occupied by the French. I mean, that's fine. <laughs> I, yes. I don't even know where <laughs> Naples is. What, like North Italy or something? South. South. So the kingdom of Naples is like the southern part of the peninsula as well as Sicily. Um, the French oh, had conquered the peninsula portion of it. But so the kingdom of Naples, quote unquote, kingdom of Naples, is basically just Sicily at this point. And they're trying to reconquer. Yeah, well, you know what they say about relying on Sicilians. Yeah. <laughs> Neither do I. So France's improbable victories in the wars of the First and Second Coalitions were explained primarily by the failure of France's enemies to coordinate their military operations. To this end, the Allies in 1805 resolved to come up with a joint plan of attack. And, you know, they're not going to make the same mistakes. The, the novel strategy of talking to the rest <laughs> of the students on the group project. Yeah. And what results is a plan that's truly grand in scale, involving multiple separate thrusts against the territories of France and her allies. So... It's going to be a lot of numbers, uh, but you don't need to remember, remember all of this. It's, it's more just there for effect. So in the north, an army of 47,000 British, Swedes, and Russians was to assemble in Pomerania and attack Hanover, which was a territory of the British crown that had fallen under French control. I assume this is like in northern Germany. Yeah, yeah this is where the... the where, you know, the British royal family is from, you know, where George I was picked out of. So, so they like Hanover, and, and they're pretty upset that the French are occupying it. Now, these forces were being reinforced by a further 50,000 Russians amassing in Poland, and it was hoped that this com combined force would be enough to pressure a neutral Prussia into joining the coalition against France. His hope was being like, hey, hey, you know, we have a bunch of men, we're really serious, you should, you know, join our side. Once again, the old another large army will join and support us plan yeah. <laughs> returning in this podcast. Yes. In Central Europe, an Austrian army of 85,000 men under General Mack was to advance through Bavaria and onto the Rhine. It was similarly hoped that this would pressure Bavaria into joining the coalition, Bavaria's independent kingdom at this point in time. Mack's force would be followed by a further 85,000 Russians under General Kutuzov. Meanwhile, an army of 100,000 under Archduke Charles would invade Italy from the north, while a force of 53,000 Russian, British, and Napolitan troops would attack from the south. And... No, what a... Yeah. Oh, 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 that's like the technical turn for from Naples? Yeah. Oh, good for them. <laughs> Got, gotta love, we're gonna have uh, the Napoleonic France partially against the Napolitan. Yeah. Now, in addition, 25,000 men under Archduke John, this is another brother of the emperor, were gonna be held in reserve, ready to support either Mac along the Rhine or Charles in Italy. In total, the Allied plan called for a total of 445,000 men. France, in comparison, could call upon 300,000 men of which around 150,000 are of fresh conscripts. Uh, so are those numbers like significantly larger or relatively the same to the wars of the First and Second Coalition? Or They're 
they're larger in terms of like all being at, on the field at once. I mean, I think like the French will have like around 300,000 in the second coalition by the end, but like, like from the get-go, it's larger. Um, as we will see, the allies can say that they're going to put 445,000 men to the field. Whether they actually do that is kind of debatable. <laughs> now, needless to say, actually amassing such a large force on such a short notice would prove to be an impossible task. The allied armies were almost immediately beset by delays. Additionally, such a vast plan was impossible to keep secret, giving Napoleon time to react to the threat. Rather than waiting around and giving his allies time to sort out their issues, he would take the offensive to them in an effort to strike a decisive blow on the coalition. Now, the centerpiece of the Allied offensive was to be General Mack's advance on the Rhine. Mack believed that by marching quickly into Bavaria, he could win the allegiance of that state and position his troops to fend off any French response as they awaited the arrival of the Russians. If the French attempted to launch a counterstrike, they would have to do so with a small force, given that larger armies took longer to muster and march. The coalition knew that the bulk of France's army was stationed near the channel prepping for that invasion that we were talking about a few minutes ago. If the French waited, Mack would be joined by Kutsutsov and possibly even Archduke John and Charles, depending on how the campaign in Italy went. So they're wanting to take Bavaria and then wait and then push full into, into France proper. Yeah. On September the 10th, Mack invaded Bavaria. And real quick, is Bavaria, like, garrisoned by the French? So Bavaria, at this point, no. Um, there is the Bavarian... But it's allied. With, it's technically allied with the French. It's like a client it's state? It's or... leaning toward... The French are trying to make it its ally. They're kind of like... They haven't really decided yet. Um, we will see they decide very quickly. <laughs> but there are... Certain countries in Italy right now that are just straight up puppet states of yes, yeah, the, France. I mean, there's a kingdom of Italy, which Napoleon is literally the king, though. Um, and, and there's the kingdom of Etruria, which um, he he, he uh, had, uh, I think it was some Italian who was his puppet. I can't remember if Etruria was some other guy or the Napoleon also claimed that title. I can and, only imagine the amount of slurs that these guys are all muttering under their breaths, knowing that they are now being ruled by a fucking Corsican. You yeah. know they had slurs for that, Jay. You get, they had to. I refuse to believe they did. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, the king of Etruria was another guy, but he was he was one of Napoleon's puppets, basically. And then... After this, Napoleon will start the practice of putting his family members on a bunch of thrones, um, but that happens after this war. Good to know. Yeah, he, he, so he has puppet states. Switzerland's also a puppet state. It's the Helvetic Republic. Um, the Netherlands is a puppet state at this point. So yeah, he has a lot of these pu puppet states going on. Bavaria was not technically one of those. So on September 10th, Mac invaded Bavaria and marched to seize the city of Ulm. The Bavarians withdrew their minimal forces without a fight, but contrary to Austrian expectations, 
Bavaria decided not to ally with the people who had invaded it, but with France, the people who had not invaded it. Still, Ulm was seized without a fight, and the Austrians looked to be in a good position f to await the arrival of Kuzutsa. It's, oh it's fucking Kutuzov. seven letters. Kut Kutuzov. <laughs> yeah. Now, unbeknownst to Mac, upon hearing of the Allied plans, Napoleon decided to march on the Rhine and beyond with the bulk of his army. Only 30,000 men were left to defend the Channel Coast, and the rest of his army, the recently renamed La Grande Armée, departed on August 25th to confront the Austrians. Max's invasion of Bavaria would conveniently provide Napoleon with the case of Spelly, you know, a just cause to go the war over. Now, the Grand Army's march would display for the first time the full effect of Napoleon's core system. You see, prior to the Napoleonic Wars, European armies had few standing units larger than regiments or brigades. So we're talking roughly three to 7,000 men. These individual regiments of infantry, cavalry, and artillery, and so on, would be grouped together in ad hoc armies when the situation called for it. During the Revolutionary Wars, the French adopted the practice of permanently grouping brigades into divisions, and Napoleon takes this a step further by combining his divisions into permanent corps. Yeah, Each so corps, if you are wondering why in English we say corps, C-O-R-P-S, when discussing military shit, blame the French. <laughs> now, each corps, say for his cavalry reserve, was made up of between fifteen and 30,000 men, generally speaking, and would have generally two-plus infantry divisions, a cavalry brigade, and attached artillery, engineers, and other support units. In essence, the corps was an entire army in and of itself, capable of marching and fighting independently. The principal effect of the corps system was to increase the speed and the flexibility of the French army. When advancing, the corps could fan out over the countryside, allowing them to advance faster along multiple routes, while supplying themselves primarily from the lands they were marching through. It's what they call living off of the land, which is also kind of a nice way of just saying pillaging, you know, whatever country you're marching through. Probably uh, with a lot of rape along the way. <laughs> yeah. Now, in battle, the corps could conduct maneuvers with superior precision, as the officers and men of each subordinate unit within these formations had experienced training and fighting as a whole. You know, it's not like, you know, some officer getting assigned a bunch of random brigades that he's now in charge of for the first time ever. You know, these people in each corps know each other. The officers all know each other. They've trained together. And by early September of 1804, seven of these corps, plus additional reserves of cavalry and artillery, for a combined total of 180,000 men, were marching on the Austrians. And if you're wondering, like, Okay, well, why does just organizing your army better make you win more? How does it help you overcome numerical disadvantages? It's like, again, this, this is before railroads. This is before mass transit. Yeah. Moving these armies around, organizing, communicating with this heart. There's no fucking cell phones. There's no fucking radios here. 
Like, yeah, the can. coalition is trying to get together to crush France. So if France can move nimbler, if its armies can move more independently, not have to call back home for orders every time they do something, go out and get shit done, you can, you, even if you're fighting a numerically superior force, you can stop it from grouping up together and have the numerical advantage in tons of little battles. Yes. Crushing it in you know a dozen various mini conflicts instead of one grand climactic clash yeah and this is really one of the big innovations of napoleonic era i think you know a lot of people might like hear vaguely of you know napoleonic warfare and like oh it was a big like a period of innovation and improvement and then they'll, they'll look at, like, drawings of the soldiers, and they see, like, well, no, this looks like the same as, like, the American Revolution or, like, the Seven Years' War. I don't get what's different. A, a lot of the difference is organizational rather than technological. Though there are some technological improvements made. And, and we need to emphasize, war will never be the same after this. Yeah. The, the, every country will do this. The core system will be adopted by everyone, Napoleon also will establish a general staff system, which is adopted by most countries. The U.S. general staff system is a descendant of Napoleon's system. All right. So, remember, by early September 7th, these corps, plus an additional reserve of cavalry and artillery for a combined total of 180,000 men were marching on the Austrian force, which was... The Austrians have around 85,000. 85,000. All right. Yeah. So Napoleon's plan was to encircle Mack and eliminate his force before the Russians could arrive. To this end, he had his cavalry reserve under Marshal Marat make a faint attack through the Black Forest to pin Mac down and feed into his prediction that the French would only be able to make a limited attack on his position. Meanwhile, the bulk of the French army crossed the Rhine and then the Danube to the north of Mac's position and wheeled around the Austrians, cutting off their line of retreat. A portion of the French army crossed through the through Prussian territory of Ansbach in route to join up with Napoleon, but contrary to the coalition's hopes, Prussia refrained from entering the war in spite of this violation of their neutrality. So this is like kind of a bold gamble from Napoleon, but he's thinking if he can just move fast enough, it's not going to matter if the Prussians are going to get pissed off. Or maybe he's just so high on his own victory that he thinks he can beat the Prussians too, which, yeah, maybe probably could. (laughs) So realizing the severity of the situation, Mack then tries to break out. But a series of small skirmishes force the Austrians back into the city of Ulm, which I imagine is going to be their tomb. The Weber did neither side any favors, as the fall and winter of 1805 would prove to be bitterly cold, with rain, sleet, and snow assailing both armies. Trapped in Ulm and with no sight of Russian relief, relief that is probably being slowed down by that rain and snow, Max surrendered his army to Napoleon on October the 20th. Six, like, six weeks. (laughs) Yeah. And the French took over 60,000 captives at the expense of just a few thousand French 
casualties. That's the Ulm campaign. That campaign in and of itself, it'll be overshadowed by, you know, the Battle of Austerlitz, which we'll go into later. But it's regarded as one of the, you know, finest pieces of maneuver warfare of the era, where with barely any fighting, Napoleon is able to, you know, get Mac to surrender. Um, Mac would call himself the unfortunate general of Mac after this battle. Um, he will not have a major command. He actually, um, Napoleon sends him back to the Austrians. He's like, you got, you can go free. And they arrest him and kind of like throw him in jail for the, for the rest of the war. Uh, and that kind of ends the uh, illustrious career of general Mac. I've heard it, some people speculate that Mac had like actual brain damage. Apparently he got hit on the head pretty bad during a war against the Turks. But uh, I don't know. I think Turks. everybody in, in, in the military in this period has brain damage. And I think Mac's actions are kind of consistent of, with him just being very arrogant and having a very high opinion of his own abilities. I mean, monarchy and hierarchy are a brain damage of the selves like you know when you are told that you are like genetically and spiritually and religiously superior to everyone you've ever been around your entire life it's kind of hard to make objective decisions the funny thing about mac is i think i'm pretty sure he's born either a commoner or like a very low nobility he's a guy who like works his way up the ranks um oh, so that, well, to, like, successful also knowing. do that to you <laughs> yeah so so i think he just like has a very high opinion of himself because of that yeah. Now, the day after Napoleon's victory at Ulm, the British would win what is perhaps the most famous victory in naval history, crushing the French and Spanish fleet off of Trafalgar. Now, in order to explain this battle, we have to take a step back a bit to early 1805, so we're going out of the chronological order right now. This could be an entire episode of its, in yeah. itself, so just yeah. strap in. Yeah. So this is before Russia and Austria joined the war, and when the invasion of England by France was still on the cards. Now, as we mentioned, the French Navy is divided into two forces. You have an Atlantic fleet stationed at Brest and the Mediterranean one stationed at Toulon. Napoleon needs to unite these two forces, and thus in April 1805, the French fleet departs Toulon under the command of Admiral Pierre Villeneuve. The British commander in the Mediterranean, Admiral Horatio Nelson, had stationed most of his ships to the east of Toulon because he thinks the French are going to attack Sicily or Egypt. Instead, Villeneuve took his ships and sails right through the Strait of Gibraltar and out into the Atlantic. Also, the British don't control Gibraltar at this point, so that's why they can't just camp there. The French fleet crossed the Atlantic by June and launched a series of mostly unsuccessful attacks on British possessions in the Caribbean, before heading back towards Europe. Why would you take your ships away from your... Why would you go all the way across the fucking pond? <laughs> I, I think they wanted to lure the British, like, out to chase, you know, all the way across the Atlantic, and Nelson does do this, but, like... But, like, yeah, aren't they supposed to not... be massing for a, a, a fight over the Channel and an invasion of Britain? What, what, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, but... I know. They, they, they decide to do the whole uh, wild goose chase. But yeah, so Nelson chases them across the ocean and back, but he's unable to intercept the French because the French have a head start. 
Villeneuve, however, is ultimately blocked from sailing to Brest by another British fleet, so instead he makes his way to the Spanish city of Cadiz by September. Now by that point, war had broken out with Austria and Russia, and therefore the planned invasion of England had been cancelled, because, you know, the army is needed for other things. So Napoleon instead orders Villeneuve, and the Spanish as well, who are now his allies, to sail into the Mediterranean and guard Italy from a British invasion. Villeneuve ignores this order because he thinks the conditions are unfavorable, which is probably true. But Napoleon then issues another order, because he's kind of mad, telling Villeneuve to stay put in Cadiz and await his replacement. Not wanting to be replaced, <laughs> Villeneuve orders his fleet to set sail for Gibraltar on October the 18th. Uh, I, I just didn't get the second order, man. I just, uh, I just, I just changed my mind. Uh, Daddy, uh, I'm, I'm good. Please, 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 please love me, Daddy. Please. Everything's fine. Now, Villeneuve had in total a force of 40 French and Spanish ships, including 33 ships of the line, which is something that I'm sure means something. To, they're big. Yeah, ships of the line are the you know major multi-deck sailing ships. They're the pirates of the Caribbean shit you're thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, these are what formed the battle line. Opposing Villeneuve was a British fleet under Nelson composed of 33 ships, including 27 ships of the line. Nelson was outnumbered, but not overwhelmingly so. And compared to the French and to a lesser extent the Spanish, the British had more experienced crews and captains. While still in the Atlantic, on October 21st, the British fleet made contact with the French and Spanish. Villeneuve's ships were sailing northwards, while arrayed in a loose, disorganized column, a result of his last-minute attempt to turn back to, to Cadiz. Nelson, with the wind behind him, divided his force into two columns and attacked from the west. His ships sailed into Villeneuve's fleet, dividing it into smaller sections, and began a series of fierce, close-range gunnery duels with the enemy. Nelson's own flagship, the HMS Victory, would find itself in a fierce battle with the French ship Redoubtable and Villeneuve's flagship Bouquetard. As the battle was underway, Nelson was shot and killed by a French sharpshooter aboard Redoubtable. Holy fuck! That's great. With command passing to Admiral Collingwood. In the end, the superiority of British tactics and training carried the day, allowing them to sink one enemy ship and capture a fervor 21. Napoleon's navy had effectively dismantled in a single day. Um, in a past life, I actually did some competitive small boat sailing, so that's no motors. And a huge part of like winning a race involves just like crossing the starting line at at the perfect time yeah um you know it's like 10 minutes to start 15 five minutes to start 30 seconds to start because obviously if you cross the line before the start you you're well you're not you're you're penalized you have to like run, run around and get and being able to time the wind time the speed to cross the line at the perfect moment that is a serious skill and just like that this is a, a period where you can't go anywhere you want. It, if you turn these yeah. ships into the wind, uh, everything's going to start rattling around, very scary-like, and you're just going to, like, stop 
And then you're, you're not even actually going to stop. You're going to then kind of like drift. It's going to be very, very scary. Yeah, these ships of the line are, are very unwieldy. Going where you want to go is partially about like asking what is the wind going to give me the opportunity to do? And so you have to think on your feet. You can't be static. And that's why we talk about the brilliance of these formations, because they require a degree of both daring and also creativity. And by getting just right up on the French, breaking through their disorganized column, um, they were able to force them to surrender. And again, this is not total war or civ six uh armies navies do not fight until they are obliterated uh yeah after it became especially clear they're going in, to loot. especially in this period of war ships of the line very rarely sink in combat they pretty much only sink if you have a powder what? explosion well and you don't um, want to sink them because yeah. they're more valuable captured than destroyed yeah so that's why, like we we said, the French only have one ship sink. The, the rest are captured. A few, some escape. And, and that's pretty normal. It's usually weather that will sink these, not not combat. No, like, I mean, again, you're, we're talking cannonballs and, and, and grape shot. Like, what is that yeah. going to do to... Yeah. You know, this is before repeating cannons and, and machine guns and, and bombs, lar like larger explosive mortar shells, like... Yeah. And what are you going to do to like fucking 70 feet of wood? Yeah. And what, like you mentioned, Trafalgar could be a film episode, really. Nelson is probably arguably the greatest military his hero in British history. The fact that he dies in this battle in which, you know, he, they triumph over the French, you know, just makes it more yeah, romantic. Yeah, that's how you win immortality. Uh, yeah. And yeah, it's it, it's a it's a major deal, even though we the actual battle is not super complicated. <laughs> yeah. So while Napoleon has captured like what a fourth or a fifth of the entire coalition's yeah. armies, um, in Bavaria, the British have what basically incapacitated any real Napoleon any real French naval capacity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the, the British will have naval superiority for the rest of the Napoleonic Wars. And a lot of people will say Trafalgar is really the last time British naval superiority is really contested until the, the rise of the German Navy in, in the lead up to World War I. Yeah. They'll say you know, this naval superiority lasts for about 100 years. This will be the last great battle of the Age of Sail. Naval Battle of the Age of Sail. Rip. Now, shortly after Mac's invasion of Bavaria, now stepping back to the war on land, um, Arch the Austrian Archduke Charles, who we mentioned earlier, invaded northern Italy with an army of around 50 to 60,000 men. You'll note this is literal, this is basically just half of the planned 100,000 men. Charles proceeded slowly, likely out of his belief that Mac's army was doomed. When he received news of Mac's surrender on October 24th, he begins to retreat out of Italy, and following an indecisive battle with the French forces, he basically just pulls across the river Isonzo 
and sets up position to guard it. Um, if you are familiar with World War One, there are a lot of fun battles around the Asanso. A lot of battles. And by fun, Jay means meat grinder. Yeah. <laughs> so. And by few, we mean like, what, a dozen plus? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. The Italians just keep on attacking. <laughs> yeah. And by meat grinder, we mean so bad that it, it, it inspired what is now one of the premier military history podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> so. Charles is basically just sitting at the Sanzo to prevent uh, invasion of Austria. As we will see, this will be pretty futile in the, uh, in the end. At least he's trying. Yeah. <laughs> the surrender at Ulm left the route to the Austrian capital of Vienna effectively open for Napoleon. Because Charles is guarding the wrong spot. Emperor France II pleaded to Kutuzov, whose army had just now entered the area, to defend the capital, but upon hearing the news of Max's defeat, he decided to turn around and retreat back towards Russia second time this has happened in a row. Let's fucking go! God, the the Russian the the Russians are like that mom who with the, the kids screaming in the back are like, I will turn this thing around. So with that done, the French marched on Vienna and entered the city largely unopposed on November thirteenth. The emperor having fled with the remains of his army to join Kuzutsov. So, uh, basically, the French have now captured the capital of one of the coalition members yes being down what three four thousand men something like that yeah that the fall of vienna did not mean an end to the seemingly endless marching for the french army not one to rest napoleon knew that he still had to defeat Kutuzov's army the Russians and Austrians slowed his advance by blowing up bridges all along the Danube. Unfortunately for them, the bridge in Vienna was captured by the French through the trickery of Marshal Marat and Lanz, allowing the French to continue their pursuit. Yeah, so this is, uh, so Murat and Lan are two of Napoleon's top marshals. So you have to figure these are some of the highest, you know, Marshal is the highest rank in the French army. So these are like his top generals. Five-star general. Yeah. They basically just go in full uniform and they just walk up towards this bridge and the Austrians are on the other side and like the Austrians are like rigging it to explode. And they just kind of like walk up to the bridge and are like, hey, you know, you guys didn't hear about the armistice? Yeah, we just signed an armistice. You know, Napoleon and the Emperor, what? like they just hammered it out. We're friends now, right? And, what? And, <laughs> and the Austrians are like, no, we're not. And it's like, oh yeah, go get your commanding officer you got like a colonel or something like go get your commanding officer he'll come down and we can talk so they go and get their colonel and he comes down and he's like i haven't heard about this but i guess you know they figured that like these are two marshals they're not going to put themselves in the position where they can easily get captured without a reason they must be telling the truth and Murat and lan convinced the austrians that they that there was an armistice signed and they're allowed to cross the bridge. So the Austrians let the, these them. boys <laughs> huckstered them. Yeah, <laughs> these boys ran a lick. Yeah, so so the so the French then just take their forces across See, the bridge. This is why the French.
Pirates keep winning in this period because all these old stodgy Europeans, they can't deal with hustlers. <laughs> they got that hustling. God damn. This is great. <laughs> yeah. Still, though, the Russians would prove adept at holding off the French through a series of rearguard actions. As the French would find out again a few years down the line, the Russians are very deadly in their retreat. As Napoleon's chase lessened, Kutuzov was able to reach the city of Olmutz, which is in what is today the Czech Republic, in November. And this is where he's joined not just by Austrian and Russian reinforcements, but by the two emperors, Francis II and Alexander I themselves. Now, Kutuzov's escape and these new reinforcements meant that suddenly the balance of power in the theater seemed to be swinging the opposite direction. Napoleon's army had been run ragged by months of marching, and his lines of supply and communication back to France were precariously thin. You know, like I said, their armies, like, live off the land, but they still have some supplies. They can't do that entirely. Um, his army had also lessened in size to just around 7,500, uh, 75, as a result of units being split off from the main army to form garrisons and guard the flanks and supply lines. You know, you might enter a country with 180,000, but you're very quickly going to have to just send people off to do these various tasks. Napoleon had been drawn deep into Austrian territory as well, and was now in danger of being surrounded if the Archdukes could take their forces around to his rear. For Napoleon, the path forward is obvious. He had to bring the Russians and Austrians to battle and defeat them sooner rather than later. In this phase of the war, the difference in the command structure of the two sides really began to make themselves clear. On the French side, there was no mistake about hierarchy. Napoleon's word was final. On the Allies' side, the situation was more muddled. Ostensibly, General Kutuzov was in charge of the joint Russian-Austrian force, but he now had two emperors to deal with. Francis, for the most part, did not take an active role in military planning, but the same could not be said for Alexander and his courtiers. Alexander's like, what, in his late 20s at this point? He's 27, yeah, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Remaining in Olmutz was not an option due to dwindling supplies, so the main question facing the Allies by November was whether to advance on the French, who were south of Olmutz, or retreat towards Russia or Hungary and wait out the winter. Kutusov advocated for the latter. Their army lacked numerical superiority, both sides had around 75,000 men, and their soldiers were just as tired as their French counterparts. Alexander, however, would have none of it. His courtiers advised him the French army was on the brink of collapse and called upon him to prove his military valor by defeating the French emperor on the field of battle. Alexander effectively overruled Kutuzov and decided to attack. Planning for the battle was left to Kutuzov's Austrian chief of staff, Franz von Wewrover. Franz von Wewrover. Fuck, it, it, I, I don't fucking care. Who, like the Russian emperor, favored an aggressive course of action. It's kind of funny that like Kutuzov kind of like mentally checks out after this to the point where... There's a story that when 
when when Verother is giving a briefing, Kutusov is literally like taking a nap. He's like done with this. <laughs> I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> um In late November, Napoleon sent an envoy to the Allied camp under the pretext of opening peace discussions. The mission was a ruse designed to gather intelligence. The envoy reported back to Napoleon that the Allied leadership was disunified and the Tsar's men were pushing him towards battle. With the final confrontation seeming likely, Napoleon set about preparing his forces. A slogging attritional fight wouldn't do. He had to win a decisive victory to bring about an end of the war. In order to achieve this, Napoleon picked a battlefield. A bit of hilly terrain known as the Protzen Heights near the village of Austerlitz. And devised a plan. By December, both armies were in the vicinity of Austerlitz. Napoleon's goal was to deceive the Allies into viewing his army, in particular his right flank, as being vulnerable. To this end, Napoleon withdrew his men from the Protestant Heights and down into the lower terrain. The Protestant Heights are kind of like a hilly plateau. Now, few commanders would ever intentionally give their enemy the high ground, so this was interpreted by the Allies as a sign that the French knew they could not defend it and were preparing to retreat. Yeah, like that area is generally where in a war uh, you would go if you wanted to die. Yeah. <laughs> Having given up the heights, Napoleon deployed his army on December 1st in a vertical line to the west of the Protzen Heights, basically kind of like an old valley that's right uh, on the western bank of it, with the bulk of his forces concentrated to the north, that is to say, his left, and only a limited force in the south located in the small village of Telnitz and Sokolnitz. The southernmost boundary of the battlefield was defined by a series of streams and ponds that had frozen over. The Allies, when they arrived, quickly set up their positions opposite to the French, with the bulk of their forces occupying the heights. So you can think this is a battle where you have two lines and they're both north-south oriented. Okay. Now, this is exactly what Napoleon expected. His plan was to bait the Allies into marching down from the heights to attack his right flank, an act that would most likely result in the fairly uncoordinated Allied army becoming strung out along its center, upon which time Napoleon would attack up the heights and cut the Allied force in two. So basically, he, he's betting that their line yeah. will extend towards his own on his right side. Yes. This is the... The North French side right, the, south side. the the south, which is the French right, yeah. And the so Allied so at, and as their army, t as the south gets like out of alignment with yeah. the rest, he's going to take advantage of their lack of coordination to punch through the middle, divide them up, and wipe it out. Yeah, because like you think of like in theory, if like if every unit just marches down the same distance at the same time, then you know they're. The, the allies will keep their formation. In reality, he knows it's not going to happen. You're going to have units kind of going off bit by bit just because it takes a while to coordinate things. And like yeah. when I say a, a line of battle, these lines are like 
eight kilometers long. It's not like an individual like field field. It's pretty yeah, big. Yeah, these people, these are fighting across like farmland yeah. and, and multiple hills and suburbs. And- yeah, there are multiple like little hamlets and villages amongst these lines. So it's not like you can see the entire battlefield. And in order for one, for- one force, well, say one um, uh, regiment to communicate with another, you know, they have to send a guy on yeah. a horse to run over and that communication makes it even e- easier uh, for forces yeah. to get out of alignment and confused. Yeah. yeah. So basically, yeah, he wants the allies to kind of get, you know, drag their lines out, kind of, you know, pushing towards the French right, and then he'll attack their weakened center. Now, as day turned to night on December 1st, the leaders of both armies knew that the following day would see a battle that in their minds would determine the entire outcome of the war. The morning of the second would prove to be a cold, misty one, with fog setting in that served to further conceal Napoleon's strength in the lowlands. The battle began around 7 a.m. with an Allied charge on the French right flank. Austrian and Russian infantry and cavalry stormed towards Telnitz and Sokolnitz, but the buildings and surrounding agricultural ditches were strong defensive positions that gave the outnumbered French the ability to avoid a collapse. Basically, they're fighting, you know, building to building here. And they're also vineyards, so you have, like, ditches for, you know, digging the vines and everything. And they're defending all this, you know. um, But also all of the... But everything's also covered in snow, right? Yes. Yeah, so if you ever, like, walked around in snow and, like, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, and suddenly your, your foot sinks in to your knee... And you have to keep that out. But imagine doing that when, like, the snow is also on top of a series of ditches. Yeah. While you're being shot at, while you're being yelled at, while there's smoke in your eyes. Yeah. Doesn't sound like a fun time. No. So just as Napoleon expected, the unwieldy Allied army soon found itself separating into three main chunks. You had their left flank, which was fighting the French right. You had the center upon the Protestant Heights, and you had a force of cavalry to the north, and dangerously large gaps were forming between them. Around 9 a.m., as the battle raged on to the south and the mist began to lift, the French infantry charged onto the Protestant Heights to attack the Allied center. The fighting was fierce as both sides poured men into the melee, but the French soon gained the upper hand and took the heights. In the north, the Russian cavalry under Prince Bagration led a desperate charge on the French left, but were halted by the French cavalry under Murat and Lannes. In a final act of desperation, the Russian Imperial Guard infantry and cavalry, led by Alexander's own brother, the Grand Duke Constantine, charged the French center, but they were beaten back when Napoleon committed his own guard's forces. Fuck. Side note. There's going to be like a thing like over a decade from now called the uh, like Decemberist Revolution yes. <laughs> failed thing where a lot of um, soldiers uh, want to fight for Constantine and uh, over be Alexander being czar. And um, I understand why he is popular amongst the Russian officer corps. That's balls. Yeah. Um, Credit where it's due. By 2 p.m., the Allied army was in full disarray and began to retreat from the field. That in itself is exceptional. This is a period where battles could go on for yeah. 
weeks. Uh, like we're not in full like World War One like trench warfare times, but like the the fact that like we're we're uh, six eight hours in and things are falling apart is exceptional. The Allied North and Center were able to extricate themselves from the battle, largely intact, but their departure allowed for the French to turn to the south and trapped the Allied left, which up until that point had still been occupied fighting that French right in those towns of Telnitz and Sokolnitz. Allied forces routed, with men streaming across the frozen lakes and ponds in an attempt to reach safety. Seeing this, French artillery opened fire on an ice in an attempt to shatter it and drown the fleeing men. Hundreds of Allied soldiers drowned in the freezing waters, a figure that would later be inflated even further by French propagandists. The Allies had expected to crush the French at Austerlitz. Instead, when the battle was over, their army had suffered over 17,000 casualties, with a further 11,000 soldiers taken as prisoners. The French, on the other hand, had taken around 8,000 casualties, a high price to pay, but one that was deemed acceptable by Napoleon. Exactly one year after his coronation, Napoleon had defeated both of his imperial counterparts. While Russia and Austria still had armies in the field after the 2nd of December, the shock of Austerlitz meant that any continuation of the war on their part was highly unlikely. The Austrians, in particular, had lost their capital and been beaten in the field not once but twice. Just two days after Austerlitz, Emperor Francis sued for peace. The Treaty of Pressburg, signed later that month, saw Austria recognize all France's previous territorial gains, cede territory to France's German and Italian allies, pay an indemnity of 40 million francs. A truce was also signed with Russia, allowing their forces to withdraw from Austrian lands. Defeated Austerlitz brought about an end to the other theaters of the conflict as well. The supposed Anglo-Russian-Swedish operation Hanover had never managed to get off the ground in the first place and was thus canceled. In Italy, the British and Russians had actually landed and occupied Naples, but were forced to abandon the peninsula in January of 1806, when Napoleon sent a portion of his now freed-up Grand Armée to reinforce French forces in the region. The Habsburg defeat in 1805 in particular would prove to have major ramifications for Europe. Napoleon used his new position of strength to create a pro-French alliance of German states known as the Confederation of the Rhine. On August 1st, 1806, the members of the Confederation seceded from the Holy Roman Empire. On August 6th, Francis II, likely fearing that Napoleon would claim the title of Holy Roman Emperor for himself, dissolved the empire as a political body, bringing about an end to an institution that had existed for around 1,000 years. Holy shit, I actually did not know that. Yeah, so... Wow, uh, this is what does it. Yeah, if you ever wonder what, what happens mean, the, to, to the HRE, uh, Napoleon happens. <laughs> wow. I mean, it had been a joke for a while, but... Damn, I mean, like... Yeah. Doesn't that shit go all the way back to Charlemagne? Yeah, and... Fuck. This is also when... Rest in piss. You know, Francis still wants to be an emperor, so he will create the title of 
Austrian emperor, which we've been using we, we've been using kind of informally because that's what everybody uses, but technically that title didn't exist beforehand. So um, this is where you got like yeah, the Austrian Empire, order. which you'll know from World War One and whatnot. Now, while the War of the Third Coalition had strengthened Napoleon's hand in Europe, the French and Spanish defeat at Trafalgar also ended any realistic chance of him invading the British Isles. British naval superiority would go on to remain a constant, not just of the Napoleonic Wars, but of the next 100 years. So are we going to see a repeat of the War of the Second Coalition, where, like, we say it's over, but Britain ne never declares yes. <laughs> peace like they, they just kind of keep fighting low-key yeah so so you know the war of the third coalition as we like know it basically comes to an end by january 1806 but britain technically still remains at war with france and russia as well had not actually signed a peace treaty it was basically just a ceasefire this meant that the foundations for the next major european conflict were evident for all to see that that conflict would come sooner than pretty much anyone expected. Tune in next time on Dragon Ball Z. So, Jay, all right, um, I feel like this war is, you know, two war, you know, Trafalgar can kind of be siphoned, sort of gated off as its separate thing, obviously very important yeah, uh, in terms of Napoleon's plans, but like, um, I I think it's fascinating how we can really once again see how the um political information whatever uh, technology organizational technology of the French army really having an impact in this war. I mean, it's yes. had impacts before, but we are seeing how like. You know, a lot of incompetence is choosing to be incompetent, choosing to not uh, adapt with the times, and, and choosing to stay disorganized, and not doing your homework, shall we say, and not being in tip-top shape. Um, and this is when, like... Napoleon is gonna has started to now try and create a Europe that revolves around France. Yeah, having all these tributary states, he's trying to recreate the Roman imperial system, basically, yeah. um, and and f have everything feed back to France. I imagine now Bavaria is going to be a relatively allied. Yes, Bavaria state is a member. France. It is one of the the first members of the Confederation of the Rhine. Hmm. I mean, important. Baden, which is, you know, the place he, uh, he abducts the Duke from, is one of the members of the Confederation, first members of the Confederation of the Rhine. It's hmm. all these little German states basically just realize that, like, you either sign up for the Confederation or, like, you can't have any security because Austria and Prussia can't guarantee your security. But if you are a European monarchist, like, in many ways, this is a greater threat than in 1792. The Holy Roman Empire is gone. Yeah. Like, the Habsburgs are entirely are, are entirely humiliated, and Napoleon's model may now 
it is looking like it may be undefeatable. Yeah. It's sort of funny um, when you first start learning about this era. And I actually remember it also even just like watching TV. Um, there was a show called Sharps Rifles, which is uh, set in the Napoleonic Wars. Um Starring the guy who plays Ned Stark in, in Game of Thrones. I can't remember his name. John Bean. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I remember watching this when I was young. And one of the things like they're always talking about is like they're always, you know, so the main characters of that are all British. And they're always talking about like, oh, like how bad the Fran the Republicans are, the French Republicans, and like how evil they are. And like for me, that was weird because like France has an empire. It's not a republic. It has an emperor. But... With Napoleon, you have this weird combination of both the republicanism, which he keeps a lot of it. I mean, he, his state is a meritocratic state. It's still called the French Republic, even after he crowns himself mm -hmm. emperor of the French. And you have this imperial angle to it as well, that both combine to basically cause a massive amount of, of fear across the other powers of Europe. I mean, the French Revolution is going to haunt European politics for well over 100 years. It's going yeah. to be viewed almost like a plague or a cataclysm that must not be repeated. Um, so, like, if you're Britain at this point... You've just got to be absolutely furious, right? I mean, well, if if you're William Pitt, you die. <laughs> the prime minister literally, like, falls, like, his health falls after hearing about Austerwitz, and he dies a couple months later. <laughs> Good for everyone else. Um, I mean, William Pitt, before his death, obviously, like, when he first heard about Austerwitz, he, he was supposed to have said something along the lines of, like, you, you can roll up that map of Europe. We won't be needing it any further. Um. And obviously, you'll know the British do keep up the fight, but but yeah, it's one of those things where like this, I think, really cemented you know France and Napoleon's dominance. Whereas you could kind of come up with a lot of excuses for the other coalition defeats. Again, they didn't coordinate at all. The Russians actually did pretty well in the second coalition and kind of got screwed over. But like mm -hmm. here, the Austrians were defeated decisively, and the Russians were defeated decisively as well yes. on the field of battle. Your Russian territory wasn't really under any threat, but they were defeated in battle. You know, the British didn't get involved in the land war, really, because they're naval power. But, yeah, this is really what makes Napoleon's dominance clear. So, I know that... You know, I'm kind of thinking about things out of order, because I know that... I know that a lot of the 19th century in Europe is kind of be like, there's the two dipole. There's the dipoles of France and Germany. Yeah. And they are kind of like in balance and they're arguing over Russia, trying to like get Russia to come in on one side or the other. Um, and Britain is obviously for, well, a long time was on like the German side to prop up against France. Um, this is like, this is obviously this, that's, this is not where the, where this starts, but like this proves like that you need a thing to match France. Yeah. And in many yeah. ways, like Europe is going to search and search and search for a way, like now that France has proved with their, um, modern 
uh, way of, of drafting soldiers and their meritocratic, highly reformed army and all of their um, artillery, infantry, and even cavalry-like experience and their massive well of um, incredibly well-bled uh, and experienced officers. The, the, I guess it's now sort of a question uh, that that's going to be on everyone's mind is how the meta has changed. This is the new dominant threat. What could possibly stop it? And I know it's going to take a while before we find out what can stop it, but even after Napoleon is gone, like everyone will know that like this could happen again. So we're going to yeah. figure out like, Oh, we're going to need a way to beat France. Yeah. Like I guess I almost take it as granted as somebody who's maybe a bit too much of a history nerd, but like, I didn't really go into like explaining much of this, but the reason why Britain is so committed to fighting Napoleon, especially from this point onwards, it, it, it partially it's you know the revolutionary you know, like that stuff, but a lot of it's just they don't want a country that to dominate the continent, because then that's a danger to them. Uh, yeah, it's obvious. And I mean, when you look at Europe, like it's very strange from a certain perspective, like why it is so dense in countries. And you have to remember in this period, it's two or three times more dense in countries than yeah. it currently is. Thanks Germany yeah. and Italy. <laughs> and a lot of that has to do with, you know, the culture of medieval Europe and how politically backwards it was and how technologically backwards it was. And people were fighting over tiny scraps of land, but like, if you had a big enough army, I mean, the Alps are big. There are some serious rivers, but like you can just roll over a lot of this. Yeah. As eventually will happen. Yeah. Well, I believe uh, if we get into more analysis, we'll start stealing stuff from probably the War of the Fourth Coalition and going on. So, um... Not going to say that's going to happen next time because we have a few other things in the pipe and depending on uh, current events, we might uh, do a podcast episode on a thing. We're kind of, we, we have one in the chamber, just kind of ready to deploy it. But that is going, obviously the War of the Coalition will be covered relatively soon as well as the rest of the Napoleonic story and many other subjects um, we're trying to sort of intersplice plenty of other fascinating stuff between our French episodes, but we are committed to uh, seeing this one through. Once again, you can find us on Twitter at Azalea Wyatt and at Jaharis48. Please tell your friends, family, anyone who will listen to you about the podcast. We appreciate it greatly, and no matter how you find us and no matter how you're leaving us, I hope you walk away from this podcast having a great day, great night. We hope to see you again. Y'all be good.